Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. So here we are at podcast number six. If you recall, if you've been following the podcast, I've talked about a number of things related to terrorism since the beginning. The first podcast looked at terrorism as a concept and set the stage for the topics to be covered in this series. The second podcast looked at Sikh extremism. Then we looked at things like Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism, Islamic State-inspired terrorism. And I was hoping when I began to plan these podcasts to keep them as current as possible, to be as up-to-date as possible. And this podcast was originally planned to talk about foreign fighters, that is, Westerners and people from other countries who left their nations to go fight for terrorist groups such as Islamic State, who did not die in theater, who are waiting to be repatriated, perhaps in prison abroad, and what to do about them. And it's been a real conundrum for a lot of countries around the world to decide whether or not they should bring their citizens home, under what conditions, whether to charge them, whether to to rehabilitate them and reintegrate them. That was the plan. And yet would be remiss of me, this being March the 19th, to dedicate this podcast to a topic other than what happened last Friday in Christchurch, New Zealand. So just to remind you, on March the 15th, a gunman from Australia named Brennan Tennant entered a mosque in the South Island city of Christchurch, opened up fire at people at prayer, killed several, wounded several, moved to a second mosque where he opened up fire again, and in total 50 people have died, including a child as young as three and this terrorist has been arrested and he's been had his first court appearance and in fact has been charged with first degree murder and probably terrorism down the road. I think it's really necessary to dedicate this podcast to the phenomenon of right wing terrorism or white supremacist or white nationalist terrorism. What it is, what it means, how much of a menace it poses and whether or not we're doing enough about it. I won't go over the details of the attack itself because this event has been covered extensively in the media since it occurred last Friday. There are, however, a couple of elements that I want to underscore. As you're probably aware, the terrorist left a manifesto of some 74 pages outlining the rationale for his attack, trying to justify what he did. He also live-streamed his attack using a GoPro camera and sought to, I guess, shock the world and maybe inspire his followers with what he was doing. And of course, the New Zealand Prime Minister immediately labeled this an act of terrorism as opposed to an act of mass murder, which is often a difficult call for governments to make. You often need to have some kind of very solid evidence in advance to lay those charges before a court. It's often easier for governments, prosecutions, to lay murder charges as opposed to terrorism Because for murder, you don't have to prove motivation. And we'll talk about the case in Canada that's that's linked to this and why the Crown elected to charge murder and and not terrorism. But the more important issue here that's been come out in a lot of analysis, a lot of op ed pieces here in Canada and around the world since the attack last Friday is whether or not this threat from right wing extremism has been ignored largely by law enforcement, by security intelligence agencies and by governments. 
the contention is is that we've been focused on Islamist extremism, the jihadi, since 9-11, and we've ignored a much bigger threat that is posed by the far right. Many people, including some scholars here in Canada and people that work for the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC in the United States, have maintained that in fact the far right poses a much greater threat than Islamist extremism, and they've brought out some numbers to try and support that argument. I want to push back a little bit on that, but before I do so, it is not my intention to dismiss or to ignore the fact that we do have a problem with the far right in a lot of countries, including my own here in Canada. But my contention is that if the far right in Canada poses greater a threat as people maintain it, it has, and if our law enforcement and security services have ignored it for too long, we should in fact have seen many more attacks and many more plots than have actually happened. So to summarize here in Canada, over the past couple of years, there is definitely one far-right terrorist attack that we can label as such, and that's the shooting in the Quebec City Mosque in January of 2017, where a young man called Alexander Bissonnette entered on a, fr- on a Sunday evening during prayers, killed six people and wounded a dozen others. He was not charged with terrorism. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. And in that case, the Crown didn't need to charge him with terrorism because, in fact, it was quite clear he was behind the attacks and he pleaded guilty to murder anyway. So there was no long court case. There was no need to prove ideology. The decision not to charge him with terrorism was a bit controversial at the time. A lot of people said, well, it's because he's a white man that he wasn't charged with terrorism. Had he been brown-skinned or Muslim or a foreigner, the government would have elected to charge him with terrorism. We can have that debate going back and forth. I don't think it's the case, but I understand the sensitivity of those that think that governments tend to charge people with terrorism only if there's some some kind of a foreign link. The other attacks in Canada that some people think may have been linked to right-wing extremism are an attack in New Brunswick a few years back where Justin Bork ended up killing a couple of RCMP officers. He was a, an anti-government, anti-authoritarian type. And there was an attack in Toronto last April, April of 2018, where a man called Alec Manassian drove a van down Young Street, one of the busier thoroughfares in Toronto, killing 10 people and wounding several others. His motivation appears to have been tied to the incel movement or or involuntary celibate. These are young men, largely young men, who cannot form relationships with women, are unsuccessful, and who therefore become misogynist and take out their anger against women and against males who successfully have relationships. It must be stressed that in neither the Bork case nor the Manassian case uh, is there a definitive definition of terrorism, uh, let alone right-wing terrorism. The reason why I want to bring this up is because there seems to be, in the wake of the New Zealand tragedy, there seems to be this call for more resources to be devoted to far-right extremism in Canada and other countries. And I think this is problematic from a, number, from a few perspectives. First and foremost, it is not clear that the far-right terrorist threat in Canada is as bad as people say it is. There's no question there's a far-right problem in this country. There's no question that we have individuals who are very hateful, who post some clearly disgusting things online. And as Barbara Perry of the University of Ontario Institute of Technology and Ryan Scrivens, a colleague of hers who's currently teaching in Michigan, 
have pointed out, there's lots of right-wing incidents in this country, but I would say that incidents are not necessarily terrorism. So, for example, uh, painting a swastika on a synagogue or on gravestones is clearly a heinous act of, of hatred, but it's not an act of terrorism. Secondly, if it's true that that the far right has been ignored by CSIS, my former organization, or the RCMP, from an investigative perspective, you would have in fact found a lot more successful attacks than have actually been perpetrated in this country. The fact that we haven't seen a lot of attacks, with the exception of Alexander Bissonnette, d- d- illustrates to me at least that I think that maybe the far right terrorist threat's been a little bit overblown in Canada. The other thing when you talk about shifting resources to deal with far-right extremism and to dedicate men and women to investigations to look at that particular threat, you have to take those resources from somewhere. There are not infinite resources. There are finite resources with security services and law enforcement. And can anyone really argue in 2019 that the threat from Islamist extremism, which for the past 20 years or so has categorically been the number one terrorist threat in most of the Western world, is somehow on the wane, I think, and I know I'm biased having looked at Islamist extremism for the past two decades and written extensively about it, that that's not the case. So if you take resources from somewhere, you'd have to take them probably from investigations looking at Islamist extremists. And if you do that, you open the door to the possibility that in fact you might have more attacks from that. I would also point out that we've had a number of attacks foiled um, that were planned by Islamist extremists in Canada over the past 20 years, including a number of successful ones, some are on the order of a half a dozen attacks have been successful in Canada since that time, and that the numbers simply don't warrant that kind of shift. More importantly, I think, when you talk about resource allocation, organizations such as CSIS and the RCMP have more things to t- than terrorism to worry about. So sticking with CSIS, which is what I know better, you'd have to take resources away from counter-espionage and foreign interference, which are two of the other parts of the CSIS mandate. And we know that there is an increase in espionage in Canada. Russia and China are major players again, as they once were. And of course, this is the year of a federal election. And there was a lot of evidence of Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016, in France's election a few years ago, and other elections throughout the West. So just saying that we should devote more resources to the far right by those who think this is a good idea, my fear is they're not taking into consideration the fact that there are much larger issues at play here. So my bottom line is that yes, we need to worry about right-wing extremism. It is a real reality in our country. It's not going away. There's a good chance it's gonna get bigger, but we have to find resources to do it, but that may entail getting more resources rather than shifting current resources from you know file A to file B. I've always argued that when you try to shift resources when you work in the security intelligence or law enforcement area, you're essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul. So that if one area gets more benefits from more resources, another area that may be equally important from a national threat or public safety perspective, in fact, gets fewer resources. So I'd like to see more data on the far right phenomenon here in Canada. There is some funding that has been allocated recently to look at this issue. I look forward to the results to try to determine if, in fact, the right-wing terrorist problem is as big as they say it is. I'd also make a distinction between right-wing terrorism and right-wing hate. Hate is uh, Terrorism is a form of hate. Not all hate is a form of terrorism. 
And here in Canada, we have different sets of laws that deal with terrorism versus hate crimes. So that's another way to look at, 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 at the far right here in this country. But clearly, a lot more has to be done in terms of identifying those who are behind the hateful messages that are posted online. Companies such as Facebook and Twitter and YouTube need to do a much better job of locating, isolating, and removing content from the internet. I know that in Europe, for example, the European Union has threatened these companies with large fines if they don't do a better job of removing material. But in fairness, these companies are faced with a couple of challenges. Number one is the sheer volume. The number of postings, videos, tweets, telegram messages, YouTube, whatever, is incredibly large. And it's growing all the time. And so it's hard to keep up with the sheer volume of the data. The other problem is that sometimes this stuff is just skirting the line between hate speech and freedom of speech. I'm not here to support the far right or their messaging, but is it not okay to have a debate on immigration that doesn't skew into calling for immigrants to be killed or immigrants to be uh, forbidden to enter the country? So there are freedom of speech issues. Another issue that's come to my attention recently is the effect that these the monitoring and removing these videos are having with the humans that are responsible for identifying and taking down this material. My understanding is that for some of these platforms, an algorithm identifies the possibility of material that should be taken down, but it's actually humans that have to view it. And in some cases, these humans are being forced to look at many, many, many such posts every 15 seconds, so many per hour, so many per day, and it's having psychological effects on people forced to watch this stuff. And in some cases, there is anecdotal data that some of the people forced to watch it are in fact adopting the same ideas that they're trying to remove. So I think there are a number of issues surrounding uh, the far right, which we can define either as white supremacism, neo-Nazism, white nationalism, etc., etc. But I do want to get back to the attack in New Zealand and to the manifesto that was left to weigh in a little bit on what I think all of this means. So as I mentioned at the outset, there has been an awful lot of analysis of late on the attacks in New Zealand. There was a horrendous attack that killed so many people and it had uh, effects all around the world. New Zealand is a lovely small country that is not normally associated with violence. It has a very low murder rate, for example, despite the fact that it has very lax gun laws. And the New Zealand Prime Minister, who has been widely praised nationally and internationally for her reaction to the massacre last Friday, has vowed to toughen New Zealand's gun laws. And that'll happen pretty quickly. In, in a lot of ways, the attack in New Zealand is akin to what happened in Australia in, in the mid-90s when a man in Tasmania in Port Arthur killed 35 people. And Australia's response to that was to tighten its gun laws. So I'm pretty sure New Zealand will follow in, in its footsteps. But to get back to the attack itself, as I mentioned, we have the benefit of a manifesto that was written by the terrorists. It's not a very good manifesto. I've had a look at it. It's very disjointed. It's, it's very poorly written. But the important thing is not how it's written, but what it says. And in this manifesto, the terrorist refers to a number of, of, of incidents uh, in recent and not so recent history that are part of what we call sort of the far right narrative. So we talk a lot about the Al-Qaeda narrative or Islamic State narrative. Well, there's a far right narrative as well. And the far right narrative talks a lot about uh, supposed decrease in influence and power of the white race. It talks a lot about 
the invasion of immigrants into Western societies. It talks a lot about the advent of Muslims taking over cities, of Muslims having large families, and therefore eventually creating a larger population than the so-called indigenous white population. There's a lot of talk about Muslims coming to impose Sharia law on Western societies. And even if a lot of this stuff is dubious at best, there's not a lot of truth to what these people are saying, these types of myths and these types of tropes, I guess as they're called, uh, are spreading rapidly online. So people do believe that this is actually a problem. And the terrorists in New Zealand also sought to use a couple of incidents to justify his acts. He talks about a terrorist act in Stockholm in 2017 in which a young 12-year-old girl died. He names her and he says that his attack is revenge for her death. He talks about a scandal in the UK that went on for decades in which young girls were, were groomed for, for sexual pleasure and some of the people, some of the groomers were in fact British Muslims. He uses that to justify what he's doing. He talks about the need to preserve the white race. He talks about immigrants as invaders that need to be rejected. And ironically, he talks about Australia and New Zealand being white European countries, missing the irony that in fact, they are white countries only because of white invasion in the 18th century by the UK. But you know, sometimes irony is lost on these people. I think in overall, what this manifesto shows is that there are a number of things that white supremacists think is wrong with the world. They criticize governments for not taking action. They criticize governments for allowing high rates of immigration and that they have decided that the only way to, to push back is to do so violently. So the terrorist in the case of New Zealand cited Anders Breivik. He of course is a Norwegian back in 2011 who killed over 70 people in Norway. Again, citing these bizarre theories about uh, the purity of the white race, Mr. Breivik saw himself as a Knight Templar, evoking the memory of the Crusades, which is a very common element that's cited in white supremacist literature. The Crusades as this great effort by the Christian world to beat back the Muslims. A lot of references to 1683, the gates of Vienna, when the Ottoman Empire was banging down the very doors of Christendom and was pushed back. He even cites Alexander Bissonnette, the young man in Quebec City from January of 2017. All of these things as inspiration for what he did. So we have a look at the manifesto. It's still available. It's not a very good read, but you'll get a, some of an idea of the types of things that are very common in white supremacist literature. And I'll tell you, reading a 74-page manifesto sure beats reading Anders Breivik's manifesto, which, which hits in at 1,500 pages and has... 20 times larger and 20 times more boring than the manifesto that the New Zealand terrorists left. When we look at what happened in New Zealand and the aftermath, we've seen an outpouring of grief and solidarity around the world. It's, it's nice when you, you see these things happening. But at the same time, there's been a lot of criticism over the New Zealand Security Service and New Zealand Police for not preventing this act from happening. The terrorist was quite active in promoting his views. So the question then becomes, why wasn't he being monitored? Why wasn't he on New Zealand's radar? Why was he allowed to buy those guns? Well, I've already alluded to the loose gun laws in New Zealand, but the far right wasn't a priority, I imagine, for either the police or the security service in New Zealand. They're fairly small services. I've, I know them both. I visited them both in Wellington, and I imagine they simply didn't have the resources to look at this kind of thing. 
The government has promised a review of what happened last Friday. It's promised to look at what its security services knew, didn't know, should have known, whether there should be changes to, to what, how the services act and what they focus on. The other challenge going forward is going to be the trial of the terrorist. So he's been deemed fit to stand trial. He was assigned a court lawyer. He's rejected the court lawyer, which means he's going to represent himself in court. Now, this is really quite a dicey issue because we know that, in fact, if he chooses to represent himself in his court case, that he's going to use his defense as a pulpit to spread his vile views on humanity, his vile views on Muslims and on immigrants. We already know that his act has been praised online by white supremacists. A lot of people calling him a hero for what he did, thanking him for his actions. There's talk about maybe holding the, the trial sort of under wraps so that he won't get international attention to care, to spread his views and to um, encourage others to follow in his footsteps. And that'll be interesting to see if that happens. The other interesting development that's happened since Friday is that a bunch of Islamist extremist groups have gone online to say they're going to seek revenge for the attacks in New Zealand against Muslims. There have been calls for attacks against Christians around the world because of what the terrorists in New Zealand did on Friday morning. It is probable that attacks will take place and the perpetrators will claim they're doing so in the defense of, of Islam to seek retribution for the loss of innocent Muslim lives on March the 15th. And if that happens, that simply provides more fodder for other future white white supremacists to carry out acts to, to seek revenge against the Islamist extremist groups who carried out attacks to seek revenge for the attack in New Zealand. So you see how this works. It's basically it's a one-upmanship for one group claims an attack, another group claims revenge, the first group claims revenge of the revenge, and it goes on and on and on. So I think we're entering a, a rather dangerous phase here in that we're going to see uh, a number of attacks carried out by a number of groups, and I would hope that we can somehow come up with some kind of a way to nip this in the bud, but I'm, I'm not that confident on, on that level. When I heard of the attacks last Friday morning, I was not in Ottawa. I was out of town, got a call from a Canadian media source asking if I'd heard what happened. And when I turned my computer on to read about it, I, my, my heart just fell. It's hard to comprehend the slaughter of 50 people who are simply doing nothing more than carrying out their rights to pray, to pray to the God that they worship in a sanctuary of peace and tranquility. And it's hard to comprehend how, how somebody could kill a three-year-old in cold blood with no more compunction than, than killing a mad dog. What, what goes through a person's mind that does this? You know, I've worked in terrorism for an awful long time, trying to understand it, trying to help others understand the phenomena of radicalization to violence and what goes on in a person's head when they go down this pathway. But I have to admit that I was really struck by the sheer horror of what happened last Friday morning in, in Christchurch, which I think is an important lesson, is that even if those of us who have been in this field as long as I've been should never get jaded, we should never just say, oh well, another attack something else for me to analyze, something else for me to write about. This is truly horror of an unspeakable level. 
I want to express my condolences to those who lost their lives, to their families, to the mourners, to the citizens of New Zealand whose society has been ruptured in many ways. This is going to become their 9-11 in some ways. This this cataclysmic event that's going to make them change a lot of how they do things and how they see things. I'm hoping there's some good that comes out of this, but it's going to take some time. In light of what I've just talked about, I'm not going to talk I'm not going to add the you know terrorist attack of the fortnight. This attack speaks for itself. There's no need for me to talk about any other attacks uh, that happened during this two-week period. So those are my thoughts on what happened in New Zealand. Those are my thoughts on what it means, what it means for far-right nationalism, white supremacy, what it means for the terrorist threat to Canada in particular from the far right. There's a lot more to say on this topic, but I think I'll end it there. So that's the end of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening. As usual, I'd like to hear what you think. You can reach me by putting comments in on YouTube. This podcast is also available on iTunes. You can leave your reactions to me on, on my Gmail account, borealisrisk at gmail.com. You can reach me on Facebook, on Twitter at borealisaves, or on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay safe.